a friend of mine recently said to me, the only thing that I know about business is that when somebody asks you to consult, you say yes. And this explains how I first got into quantum computing and ethics. I was working with a client. We were doing primarily work around artificial intelligence and ethics. But they said, you know, we really want to start working on thinking about quantum computers and ethics. Could you help us with that? And I said, yes. Now, I didn't really know much, if anything, about quantum computers, but I was fascinated to dig in and figure it out. I subsequently had a conversation with someone who has a PhD in quantum chemistry, which, frankly, I did not know was a thing. I had quantum physics, sure, heard of that, know a little bit about it. Quantum chemistry, never heard of it. Had a fascinating conversation with that person, did a lot of reading, a lot of research around quantum computers and what's going on, and became completely just fascinated by the whole thing. Now, when I tell people, have you, you know, I'm doing a little bit of work or I'm, I'm writing on quantum computers and ethics, people's faces go white or blank there. And it's sort of a, uh, you know, I don't know what that is. They, they've never heard of quantum computers. And if they have, or if they have some inkling of it, still, I find that people are wary of the topic because they think, not unreasonably, that you're going to have to understand something about quantum physics to understand quantum computers. That's super techie. It's, it's, you know, I need to know stuff, stuff about physics and math, and it's too much. I'm not, I'm not interested. Now, I think that's a mistake. It's true that quantum computers are bonkers. I mean, these things are, are really crazy. They can do, as, a, as you'll see in a moment with my conversation with Brian Lenahan, they can do calculations in mere seconds or minutes that it would take our best supercomputers of today thousands of years to, to do. That's, I mean, that's crazy. That's how fast these things are. And it, it has at least in part to do with how they work. Um, what's crucial is that I want you to separate what these things can do from how they do them. In my conversation with Brian, you will hear a little bit about how they do what they do, but you'll hear more what they can do, what they're going to enable us to do. The technology is totally fascinating. It's not totally here yet, as you'll hear Brian tell us. It's not a matter of when, it's a matter of something like what phase are we in in quantum development, because there are already innovations in the world of quantum computers that are impacting what we do today. So there's really, really fascinating things going on. I really hope that you, you walk away with this with an understanding of what roughly anyway quantum computers can do and how they can open up new avenues of innovation. But also, frankly, there's new avenues of risk here that we really need to keep an eye on. So I won't talk a tremendous amount in this episode, or Brian and I won't talk a tremendous amount in this episode about the ethical impacts of quantum computers. We'll talk a little bit about things like cybersecurity and quantum. But it's really important, I think, that we get a grip on what makes these technologies tick if we are going to have those conversations about what constitutes the ethical deployment of this stuff. So as always, I hope you enjoyed the conversation, but more than anything, I hope you get something out of it. For all those people who have no idea what a quantum computer is or where this talk about quantum computers even came from, can you just give us a crash course? Whenever I talk about quantum computers, it's just simply another tool. How can you address the hardest problems that you have in your organization and use another tool? that let's say, for example, a classical computer would take 10,000 years to solve. You know, there's an opportunity now to use a new type of computer that's based on quantum mechanics and physics 
and allow them to take the hardest problems that they have and start to digest that data and come up with solutions. If you think about it this way, there's a big difference between classical computers and even supercomputers and quantum computers, and it's this. If you try to solve a problem, let's say a maze with a classical computer, it takes a linear approach. It starts to go, let's say a mouse through the maze one at a time. It returns back to its origin and then goes down the next path. But if you've got a quantum computer, you're looking every single potential path at the same time. Mm -hmm. So this is a massive increase in the potential computational potential that companies can have. So that's interesting. You know, what, I was going to ask you a question like, and I know what I know what the answer is, but I wanted to, you know, to set it up with something like, so we're just talking about super fast computers, right? But you've already that's, pointed, that's... well, you've already pointed to a difference, I take it, because you didn't say, you know, it'd be a super fast computer or increasing the volume on the speed of our computers means that mouse would go down each pathway sequentially just a whole lot faster. But what that's you're tough. pointing out is that it's not just that mouse going through each path faster. It's whatever the hell this means. It's slowing <laughs> down all those paths simultaneously. And so you get to a quicker result, not because you've done the normal things faster, the things that a regular computer does, the thing that our laptops do. Yeah. But it's doing a different kind of thing to get to the answer. Exactly right. And it's what it's doing. So you, you characterized it well. What it's doing is using properties of nature that, you know, have been discovered 100 years ago. Only now in the last decade have we been able to take that information that Einstein and Feynman and all these other great scientists started discovering back in the 1900s to say things like quantum entanglement. And I would never start a conversation <laughs> with the CEO with this topic. Yeah, basically oh, yeah most idea, anyone. Yeah. You know, the idea here is, you know, you've got a pair of socks you know, a left and a right sock that, you know, a quantum entanglement says these two electrons or photons or, you know, pieces of nature are innately connected because, you know, no matter where that right sock is in the universe, it's connected to the left sock. And so using those properties, we're able to faster results, store more information. Um, and, you know, it's not simply a matter of classical zeros and ones, it's matter of all states in between. And so all of a sudden we exponentially increase the opportunities we could do for computation. All right. So I do want to, I do want to dive a little bit more into the, to the physics, physics of it all. But before we do get deeper into that conversation. So you said we can do the kinds of calculations that we can't do with today's best supercomputers that it would take today's supercomputers years, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years to do it. There's just, you know, doing that one by one route through the maze, even if it's really fast, the mazes are so yep. complex that it's going to take thousands of years. So it's the nature of the quantum computers that it can do calculations in a different way, allowing it to solve problems we can't solve now. So what are, just give me some examples of some of those problems that we can solve using a quantum computer, at least in principle, that yeah. we can't do with a supercomputer. Yeah, let me give it in sort of levels. So there are near-term uses of quantum computers that we're already seeing in use today. There are ways to connect up your quantum and classical computer. And then there are pure quantum computer applications, which are years away. So, you know, that's quite often read. The first question I get asked is when quantum. Yep. When quantum is not a year, it's a range. 
So, you know, if you think about things like portfolio optimization, you're a bank, you've got trillions of bits of data. When you try to run an optimization routine that tries to characterize a portfolio as close to reality as you possibly can, you can only make assumptions because you can't actually use today's classical computers or supercomputers to emulate reality. There's just too mm. many pieces of data. When you start using quantum capabilities, you start approximating much closer that reality. And so, you know, and you're also able to do those calculations in real time as opposed to waiting a day or a week or whatever. So if you're a financial organization and you see that potential, you're going to start pursuing it. And we've already seen, you know, JP Morgan Chase, Caxa Bank in Spain, all of these larger entities start to use portfolio optimization via quantum techniques. So that's okay. one example. Okay, so it's something like this. Look, you want to make certain kinds of predictions about how the future is going to unfold so that you can invest your money properly, invest your money well, mm -hmm. something along those lines, right? Yep. And in order to make the best predictions, you're going to have to have some model of what the world looks like. We have to have some conception of what the world looks like in order to predict how it's going to continue to unfold. But the world's phenomenally complex. There's a tremendous amount of variables. There's countless causal relations among all those variables. And you just can't model it very well with today's computers because they're just, they don't have the power to do it. Exactly. But quantum computers can countenance all those variables. It can, it can just handle more data, which means that it can get, at least in principle, a better mirror or duplicate of reality. One might say a digital twin of the reality that you're looking to model. Exactly, and or a quantum twin. Quantum, yes, okay, great. Quantum <laughs> digital, wonderful. And so if you, can, if you can model the world, if you can sort of paint a digital picture of the world with finer grain detail, you know, a fine tipped brush as opposed to a broad brush, then in principle, you should be able to make better predictions. And exactly so right. that's the More kind of thing that we can do with a computer. That's exactly right. And so, you know, that's just one example. Another example is something called quantum sensing or imaging. And that field is actually even more advanced than quantum computing is today. So imagine if you were an oil and gas company and you wanted to optimize your spend in terms of how do you go out and find where the most likely candidate wells are. And there are much greater accuracy levels in gradiometers, you know, those things that actually look into the earth to cents for oil and gas pockets. And so let's just say it's not oil and gas, what you're looking for, let's say it's treasure. You know, you're an archeologist and you're looking for, you know, something that's, you know, it's in this general area. But the mm -hmm. problem is today you've got to dig pits in order to see if you can find the actual ashes of human bones or treasure or whatever. Yeah. The University of Birmingham has come up with something called the quantum gravity gradiometer that allows you to look more deeply into the earth and more quickly find those important caches without disturbing the earth anywhere near as much. So, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't understand this. I mean, I've, I've read about it, you know. So the example that I read about had something to do being able to use quantum computers to do this kind of detection that you're talking about, detecting quantum particles at a distance without a causal interaction between those things. And the example that they were using was a submarine. So mm. the military can use it to sense submarines out there far away in the ocean without, you know, bouncing some radar-ish thing off the submarine, thus alerting them to, the, to their surveillance. 
one Jesus, question is I barely understand. I, uh, one, I don't understand the physics behind it. But two, I'm also a little bit murky about the, is that, is that an application of a quantum computer? I mean, I don't think of my laptop as sensing things. It's processing. And when we talked about quantum computers processing variables, you know, millions, billions, whatever variables, there's no sensing there. So what's the connect between this ability to use quantum, quantum computers and quantum sensing bones, oil, submarines, et cetera? Think about it this way. There's two separate tools that you're using, you know, imaging capabilities, imaging hardware that allows you to look out or look down. And I'll describe that in a second. But then the quantum computer, which is doing the analysis part. So you're gathering the data through one tool and you're analyzing it through the other. So that's really sort of the marriage of quantum sensing and imaging and, and computing. So let me talk a little bit about yeah. why quantum sensing is more, can be more accurate. If you think about the early days of radar back in 1935, when the Brits were actually looking at how they could see planes before they actually arrived shores, and they came up with the most rudimentary capabilities for radar. And essentially what they were doing was bouncing signals off the ionosphere to actually find those, find those planes. But that wasn't the first attempt they tried. So they were continuously improving. And by 1940, they had a full network of radar systems. But basically what it does is it pushes out a whole, you know, series of signals. Well, the challenge is you have interference from heat, from movement you know, from other targets. So you don't really know what the target is. You just know that it's approaching. And so by using quantum sensing and imaging techniques that are connected with nature, you're able to see through many of those barriers that you otherwise would not be able to, whether it's in a submarine, in an airplane or something else. So, so let me make sure I have this right. I mean, the general sensing equipment to put it really sort of dumbed down metaphorical, sort of shoots a thing, at the, you know, it's like shooting something at the target. And on that trip, on the way over there, it can run into a bunch of things and be interfered with in a variety of ways. Absolutely. And the way that quantum physics works or the things that, the way that, that, that particles act at the quantum level is that somehow you've got two things, A and B, that are entangled, meaning that Altering one alters the other or something along those lines. Yes. And it does it even though there's no thing that's, as it were, shooting between the two of them. And so that's why we get, that's why we get this sort of spooky action at a distance thing. Exactly right. Now, you know, the depth to which you and I are going in this conversation is yeah. much deeper than most any conversation I have Good. with business leaders and so on. So it's fascinating, particularly for me. You know, one last example of that is... Cars that have, you know, massive sensor, sensing capabilities are on the streets. We already see them, whether it's Tesla or some other model that has lots of sensors. Mm. Well, one of the challenges, they can't see around a corner. Mm -hmm. So, you know, believe yeah. it or not, quantum imaging techniques are now starting to help with that problem. So, you know, a problem that a traditional computer couldn't handle, we start to see some, you know, benefits coming in in other fields. So that, that's very cool, obviously, because one of the big issues, as you said, is it can't see around the corner, can't see tons of stuff, but it wouldn't have to see it because if it's, if it's quantum powered or quantum enabled no. or whatever you want to call it, it would, it would sense things in this quantum way. Okay, so you've got these quantum sensors that are connected to quantum computers. 
the quantum sensors collect the data, the quantum computers analyze the data, process the data, whatever you want to call it. Right. So you might have a quantum sensor that is hooked up to, I don't know, particles and cars, you know, in a, in a one mile radius or whatever it is. And then you've got the quantum computer processing, you know, making a, a sort of digital map of all those cars because it can handle all that, all those data points. Yep. And don't forget about the third tool, which is your classical computer systems. You know, you have all these large companies, medium-sized companies that have spent millions of dollars on their infrastructure, you know, to have a digital transformation or a digital infrastructure in their business that doesn't go away. You know, these quantum solutions that you and I are talking about are add-ons to that capability so that they become sort of hybrid. You know, where the data gets transferred into a digital environment when it's better to actually process it there. And so the data will move back and forth between these systems to wherever it's optimized. Sometimes you just don't need that capability. Yes. Yeah, so, 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 you know, when I picture a, I, quantum computers, I know are phenomenally difficult to create. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them, or is it all of them need to be held at near? absolute zero temperature, right? So we're talking about cold yeah. in the matter space. So when we talk about self-driving cars being powered by quantum, we can't mean, do we? Little mini Not quantum computers, all. right? Okay, so, so you've got these quantum computers in these, you know, insane research facilities that can hold quantum bits, qubits. We haven't talked about that yet, but qubits at yeah. near zero temperature. And, and then what? You just have something like, you know, 6G, 7G, and so <laughs> the processing is happening off-site. So your car is talking to, do you have a quantum sensor on your car? Or is it that there's some like, you know, floaty satellite quantum sensor that's sensing all the cars that feeds it to your car? Or These are great the, questions. These are fantastic. The, yeah. I mean, so what, what are all the parts here? I mean, how does all this connect up? Because it seems there's so many moving parts and the, the interoperability seems like a massive headache. And then just the... The actual speed, I mean, just if the quantum computer is doing all the stuff so quickly, but then it has to travel over, yep. you know, my Tesla crappy internet, you know, that's, that's going to so, be a problem. So, so here we go. This is, this is great because um, if you think about a quantum computer, you and I are not going to have a quantum computer on our desk or in our car anytime soon. These, the, the next part is, you know, I had the wonderful opportunity a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago to actually go visit a quantum lab cool. and touch those physical quantum computers. And these were the kind that you're talking about, where it's refrigerator sized, where you bring the chip down to this just above absolute zero temperature in order to be able to control these qubits, these, you know, elements and be able to move them around and do calculations. So that's one form, but there are at least, I mean, if you remember VHS and beta as an example, sure. right? both of them operated, but we eventually migrated to a VHS solution in the tape days. So similarly with quantum, there are 10 different types, at least 10 different types of quantum technology, mm -hmm. and they're all vying for, you know, supremacy, which one's going to actually, you know, be the final version of quantum technology, if we only have one. The one you talked about is something called superconducting. So you know, conducting it down to a very cold level so you can actually control them. There are also photonic qubits based on light and, you know, using lasers and control. 
There are also room temperature qubits, which are based on things like diamonds. There are, there's an effort towards miniaturizing quantum computers. So we're really at a stage here when we're actually talking about doing this podcast, a very early stage in the development of quantum computers. So that, that's fascinating. I'm interested to hear a little bit more about that arms race. I mean, I know, so maybe, well, maybe we should talk a little bit about qubits, how many qubits you need yep. and how that relates to the issue about noise in the system, having noise yeah. resistant quantum. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what it means for, you know, why there's such a problem now with noise, what that, what that amounts to in quantum computers. I think the answer to the noise problem is, the, is more qubits. And yep. that looks like, you know, IBM recently reported that they have something like what, 456 qubits? 433, yep. 433. So is it a, you know, is it a, is it a qubit race? Is, you know, where, where do we stand in this race? Yeah, it really is. It is a qubit race. And, and here's the reason why, because, because you're using different elements of nature, whether it's electrons or ions or photons, they react differently. And so you have to control them differently. If you think about the noise aspect you're talking about, noise can come in a number of different ways. We've solved for it in the digital world, but not so much in the quantum world where it could be thermal noise. So the temperature that a, you know, an electron is impacted by, or it can be radiation, or it could be movement. There could be a number of different things. So, for example, when they're creating these kinds of refrigerator computers, they have to solve for all of those things to make sure that they have the optimal scenario for using it. Now, right. so it's just we're talking about just literally the physical environment impacting the hardware in such a way that it can't do the calculations well. Exactly. We need to get to the point where you can take your laptop anywhere in the world. It can be cold. It can be hot. You know, but it's right. based on transistors and integrated chips and, you know, operates in all those environments. So we're not there yet with, you know, quantum capabilities. That's not necessarily a bad thing. So what are the types? Well, you can have, and they all have different pros and cons, which is a fascinating place to be. You know, some scale up much better than others. You know, some have a much higher cost impact. You know, mm. Some are not as fast in terms of their processing speeds. And for the people who are listening to your podcast, they don't necessarily have to sift through all of those things because basically what a quantum computer does today is operate through the cloud. So if you're using a quantum computer, you may not even know you're using it because the interface, you know, the Amazon brackets or soft Azure or the platform you're using Maybe simply using it in the background to optimize your output. Right. So back in the day, I used to, I, I did, I ran operations for a, a wholesaling company. We had, we had deliveries. And so I would use, I used routing software to route the trucks. And for all I know, I mean, it, it definitely was not, but one could be using some routing software one day. It's powered by quantum computing and you just don't know it. You just know that, oh, wow, these routes are really good. Exactly. And so. You know, companies like FedEx and UPS are exploring the traffic optimization and logistics optimization of quantum computers because, you know, I gave that maze example, but being able to come up with, you know, when you were in the wholesale business, really getting all of the best possible routes and prioritizing mm -hmm. them and handing them to you as opposed to, well, this is a 50% probability or 70% probability of correctness, right? And you then you take from experience and you continue to provide more inputs. 
So, you know, really there's the advantage that a number of these, you know, sort of transportation and logistics companies are leveraging. And actually, over and above, you know, I guess aside of financial services, transportation and logistics is one of the leading users of quantum mm-hmm. technologies. So, okay, so we've got this noise from the physical environment impacting computers, quantum computers in various ways. One obvious way to try to solve for this is to shut down the environment as much as you can. So it's, <laughs> yes. you know, it's a you know, highly contained research lab. It's not like, you know, Bob is going to suddenly come on the door and, the, you know, a draft comes in and everything breaks down. So it's highly, it's yeah. highly controlled. But even that, there's only so much you can do because there's yeah. quantum stuff going on that, you know, you can't, clo- you can't close the quantum door, so to speak. And so I take it that one answer is more qubits. So we need more, pro- more what qubits are just quantum bits. Instead That's of being right. zero or one, they're zero and one or something along those lines. And the more bits you've got, the more resistant the computer is to interference. Yeah. Right. You know, here's the, here's the situation with today's world. So you referenced IBM. They have a superconducting technology that they use and their roadmap says, you know, they've been increasing their qubit counts. So this year they announced a 433 qubit quantum computer. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's all really about fidelity or accuracy. So each one of these computing companies tries to get to a point, despite the noise, of 99, they, they call it by nines. So 99.9 and then whatever the next digit is, because pretty much all quantum computers today have that capability of 99.9%. But really, accuracy, accuracy. but you may think that's a high number, but it's not, Hmm. particularly when dealing with trillions of bits of data. If you have in, if you have errors on that last digit, you know, then that becomes a real challenge in terms of the output. Is it really trillions? So, That's trillions of trillions data of points. So absolutely. So you know, and that number, if you probably heard or used this example, there's been more data created in the last two years than in the, all of history, mm. and so that continues. And you know that that sort of exponential rise in data. So what the technology does is it allows you to incorporate more. So you try to it, you try to do just that. Now, there are other technologies that have tens of qubits, but they don't require the same sort of freezing mechanisms or worries about impacts of movement and so Mm. on. And so you think, okay, well, that's great. Maybe we'll try that, but it needs to be able to scale up in order to become consumer friendly. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very interesting time to be at. If, if you listen to a lot of the experts, they'll say, Brian, we need 10,000 logical qubits and a million physical qubits. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, what it means is physical qubits are those ones that you describe, you know, so just individual elements that are paired. But logical qubits are the, and what they do is they help disperse the noise. So that you have these 10,000 logical qubits that are actually doing the hard work. And so... What's, um, a, what's a logical qubit? I know the, the, the qubit is just a physical the, the thing that you put onto a, a, you know, like a board, right? Yep. Is yep. a logical qubit a thing you put on? Is, is it a physical thing or is it a, is it a metaphor? So these are, these are ions that are actually moving through a circuit board. So, you know, just like you have with integrated circuits today and electricity and so on, these are actually moving through gates, a circuit Mm -hmm. board. And there could be 5,000 gates on a circuit board, for example, right? 
but it's the physical qubits that are moving around that chip that protect those logical qubits that are actually doing all of the hard work and doing mm. the calculation. Okay. So you look at those two numbers, 10,000 and a million. Well, we are so far away from that level of quantum computing that you say to yourself, well, okay, Brian, so should I just wait for that to happen? And I don't want to take us, jump us too far forward, but you know, that's where we are today. Well, so, okay. I mean, so, okay. I'm not even sure where to, to start. I have so many questions. So it sounds though that we have enough qubits and logical bits to do some things like routing. So yep. what I would consider maybe not financially, but at least sort of society-wise impact, low-risk low, low, low risk kinds of things. I can if give they, you an example if you'd like. Sure. So last year at the Port of Los Angeles, there were some major, major supply chain issues. And so they were using their classical computers to try to come up with new scenarios. You know, you can imagine trucks were waiting for hours, mm -hmm. containers were being left in the wrong places or not being moved by the actual cranes very well. So what they did was they worked with a company in Canada called D-Wave as well as a local DICS consultant. And they said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to compare the output from our classical computers responses to one that we're going to do with a quantum computer. And, and really what they did was they took algorithms that were based on quantum technology and used them with both quantum computers and classical computers. But what they came up with was a 30% improvement in the overall movement of the cranes, the wait times, and you know the personnel rosters. So all of a sudden, you had a much more efficient Port of Los Angeles based on you know this one exercise. Yeah. And so you know there's tangible results, but this isn't a perfect quantum computer that's sitting on the desk of the people of the Port of Los Angeles. This is all data that's being flown through the cloud analyzed and brought back. Mm -hmm. So one day we're going to want quantum computers to do things like quantum sensing of cars. If we want self-driving cars, or even if we don't want self-driving, we, one thing that we haven't talked about, but I, but I take it is in the, in the area is precision medicine at the individualized mm -hmm. level. So yep. we, we gather a tremendous amount of data about a given individual. We create their digital twin. We can do that with quantum computers because it can handle all the data points. And then we sort of, you know, virtually test out what happens if we introduce this medicine into their system and we see how it goes. Exactly. I stake stuff. We need, though, 10,000 and 1 million, whatever those numbers are. How far are we from that? Are we talking like, you said it's in the future. Are we talking five years, 10 years, 50 years? Do we have, can we make, or can we even make a, a defensible estimate on that? Yeah, so let's do it in a couple of ways. Today, companies are already using something called quantum-inspired technology. So they've created the algorithms, the software, mm -hmm. but there isn't a quantum computer to run it on. So what they do is take that learning and apply it to a classical computer. So whether that's a magnetic resonance imaging machine or you know some other imaging technology that exists today, and they use that same sort of concept in a classical environment. So they're actually hmm. getting some decent results out of this, increasing accuracy. It's a far cry from the potential that we'll have once we have both the classic, the quantum algorithms and the quantum computer hardware. And so one of the things, I'm going to be speaking at a conference in a couple of weeks, and one of the moonshots that we're going to be talking about is curing cancer. Hmm. 
Well, some of the challenges with cancer is really digging deep down at the cellular level to understand the causes of that, that disease and how the, those causes start to spread and emanate, you know, and, and if we can get down to the beyond the molecular level to the atomic level and really understand what's going on at that level, because we have much more accurate imaging capabilities, you know, whether that is the earliest estimates I've heard of that is maybe three to five years away. That's really not that far. Oh, wow. That's, that's nothing. Right. That's amazing. Three to five years. Yeah. So if you, even if they're wrong by, you know, by double, right? 10 years isn't so bad. Exactly. So if you can actually have even the beginnings of the sense of understanding of what exactly is happening, let alone trying to cure it, you know, then we can, you know, have our experts have a much greater chance of helping people in from societal level. So one thing that we haven't talked about yet that touches on, on this kind of issue is we're talking about high stakes situations. Mm -hmm. I mean, cancer treatment, it is high stakes, although they're also, you know, going downhill, it might be a last resort, but if it's not a last resort, but there's, you know, there's going to be lots of applications where maybe not quite life is at stake, maybe life is at stake, but it's high stakes and where you rely on the predictions of, or we're asked to rely on the predictions of a quantum computer. We yeah. already have issues about reliable and trustworthy or whatever you want to call it, AI, because of the explainability issue with the black box. Why is it a black box? Because AI is recognizing these really complex mathematical patterns that we can't grasp. You talk about quantum computers and the, and the kinds of modeling they're doing, the predictions they're making. Talk about a black box. I don't care what kind of technique you have to start, try to ex understand yeah. what's going on inside the black box, the quantum model, or whatever you want to call it. But um, it's going to be a massive oversimplification of what's actually going on. So yeah, how, do we, how do we think about explainability, trust in quantum computers? Is it just a matter of, you know, it gives some output, let's try it out, see if it works. If not, don't trust it. And what's the, what's the play here? Yeah, so definitely not a blind trust situation. I mean, just like you said, I mean, it's really a black box on top of a black box in yeah. a sense where, you know, the person who, let's say, is making a decision to invest in both quantum and AI you know, may not know anything about those two topics. Yeah. And so when you think about trust, really what is happening today is not so much accepting the output of these quantum algorithms or quantum inspired activities. It's a comparison. We're constantly comparing what the output is from a quantum capability perspective to a classical computer. So you're not doing them independently, at least not the best practice. Yeah, And so if you trust your digital capabilities, at least it's the best you have available. You now have another yeah. selection set. So it's a, sort of a benchmark question. You know, what's, what's the benchmark for using quantum in this particular use case? I once sort of did a little, you know, a little mini poll on LinkedIn that was something like, it wasn't quantum, it was AI, but it's the same, same issue about explainability, which was, suppose you can ask, you can go to, a, and actually use the example of an oncologist. So it was a cancer example. You've got an oncologist who's right 75% of the time, and she can explain her rationale for why she's making the judgment call that she's doing, or that why she thinks you do have cancer or you don't, or why this is the appropriate treatment. Or you can have a black box AI that on historical data at any rate is 95% accurate. Which one do you want to go with? Do you want to go with the, the human who can explain with the 75% success rate, or do you want the 95% success rate of the, of the unexplainable yeah. AI? And most people, again, completely unscientific poll, it's LinkedIn, but most people, and I think 
this is where I land as well. I think I think land with the AI, with the unexplainable black box that has a good performance record. And so, you know, do we trust the quantum computer to sense cars? Well, let's see how it does. If it performs better than our best drivers, that's a good reason to start using it, even if we can't explain and, it. And we better not be having our first tests on real streets. Right. You yes. know, I mean, yeah. we, <laughs> where, where did we start with, it was at college campuses for, you know, the earliest kinds, you know, auto drive capabilities where, you know, it was limited. And so, you know, we better be doing this. We better have the same kind of controls uh, if we're going to be deploying quantum technologies in this kind of way. But, you know, as I say, best practice is that you take your, your quantum analysis, compare it to your classical analysis and decide yeah. what you've got. Here's the challenge, though. In a, in a number of years from now, we won't be able to do that because the classical systems won't actually be able to do the calculation. It'll be too difficult. Right. So we will have a situation where hopefully we've learned sufficiently about the capabilities of quantum technology that we can start to trust. Yeah. So many more questions. Okay, so let's 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 do two more two more things that I want to talk about. Then we can then we'll wrap up. One is that I would feel delinquent if I didn't talk about cybersecurity for a second. Mm -hmm. Right. So the big fear is that the vast majority of encryption on the internet is accomplished by what's called one-way encryption. So you take some encrypted data, you run it through your encryption algorithm, it outputs something, and it just goes one way, such that you're not supposed to be able to reverse engineer it. So you can't take mm. some encrypted data and then run it through some reversing algorithm and come up with the unencrypted data. That would be, that would be really bad. So that said, it looks like with quantum computers, we can do that. There's this thing I know called Shor's algorithm, right? That yeah. we can run Shor's algorithm on encrypted data. And so reverse engineer the encryption and thus have the original data. That's the vast amount of encryption on the internet today. Yeah. It's also the encryption used by states, right? Nation states. And one of my sort of favorite things to talk about or mention in this context <laughs> is deal now, decrypt later. So it's yeah. not, we don't, it's not just a problem that is on our doorstep. When we have quantum computers that are up and running short algorithm, it's now because let's say China can steal state secrets now that are encrypted in five, 10 years from now, decrypt it. And the locations of our military bases may not have changed. And so they're going to have all this secret. So how worried should we be about this issue? Did I miss, did I, did I, did I not accurately capture something about the problem? Where are we in solving the problem? Yeah, you did a great job. I mean, today's RSA 2048 is the sort of the state of the art encryption. That's the one-way encryption. Yeah, the one-way encryption. So basically it's based on factoring very large numbers, which is a very big challenge for today's classical computers. In fact, it can't be done. It hasn't been broken. But what Shor's algorithm proved was that if you have a fault-tolerant quantum computer, a computer that's basically almost perfect, you can actually decrypt that encryption. So here we are. We know that there's an algorithm that actually probably could decrypt break this technology, but it's waiting for the hardware to catch up. So the question is, when will that happen? And so, you know, we talked about the 10,000 logical qubits and million physical qubits. So it's a number of years away. What's happening today, however, is preparation. So you take the United States government, for example, it's told every single one of its departments, they have to inventory all their sensitive data by May, 2023. So they have to be able to clearly articulate where their sensitive data is. 
And on, on a second level, they're going through a whole standardization process to understand how something called post-quantum cryptography. So if you have a quantum computer and I have a quantum computer, how am I protecting myself? And so they're going through that standardization process. There are two key technologies that are out there, hopefully that are going to protect our systems. But remember, just like digital transformation, it takes time to get your systems to a point where you've got that investment and protection in place. The two types are called post-quantum cryptography, which is a way to use the software for the data that's sitting there, and then something called quantum key distribution for when the data is in movement. So, you know, you're going to need both levels of technology for protection purposes, but there are also some other types, quantum permutation pads and some others. So basically, whenever I talk to somebody, a large company, a medium-sized company, and say, you know, they ask me when, I say, you need to start preparing right now. You need to understand the layers of protection that you're going to need for your most critical data points, applications, et cetera. So, you know, in my world, lots of people are making those predictions about when that is going to happen. But the, but the most challenging thing is what you described. We talk about as, you know, steal now, decrypt later, and that's happening. And so large amounts of data are just waiting for that hardware to catch up to be decrypted. Do we, do we have those quantum resistance encryption methods now? I mean, I feel like yeah. I've, I've recently read about, you know, they thought they had one and then like some grad student cracked it in four hours with a laptop. Yep. Um, and but, so that's, that's happened. So two of the six Institute of Science and Technology candidates for encryption, Rainbow and Psych, were both successfully solved by people using laptop and, you know, not an army of programmers. Yeah. So, so that made the industry very, very nervous. Um, they continue to look for solutions. But what's interesting to me is I have connections with all sorts of different companies that are using their technologies for cybersecurity protection. And so, you know, if any of your listeners are thinking about this, there they can go to the Quantum Strategy Institute website, which is my organization. They can go to a number of other places, but really start to find those trusted vendors that they can, where you can say, show me how it works in an organization, you know, demonstrate its capability for something you've got today and not wait two to five years for when you see it in the media. Okay, last question, and then we'll wrap up. Talk to me a little bit about how accessible these computers are going to be. I mean, we all have laptops now or desktops, or we have both. We have, you know, phones in our pockets. These computers, quantum computers, are phenomenally powerful. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one thing that people are going to raise is something like, well, you know, it's tremendously powerful and 10 companies have it. That's a problem. So what... What is access going to look like? I yep. mean, I know it's in the cloud. We access it via the cloud, but how many, you know, how many call-ins, how many requests to the single quantum computer can be made, right? If, if IBM or Microsoft or whatever has, you know, reaches the million, 10,000 numbers that you're talking about, it's going to get bombarded with all sorts of requests from people who have made quantum software. And, yeah. Right. It's going to be a mass startup environment. So. You know, how many, how many requests can such a computer handle at once? Does it, is it going to be something like, you know, going to be pay for play? So the big companies are going to have access 
to the quantum computers, so, whereas startups and small, medium-sized businesses forget about it. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a lot to, a lot to cover in there. So if you think about who is using it, these are developers, right? So this isn't, you know, the C-suite or somebody. This is somebody sure. who is actually yeah. coding on, on their desktop or laptop. And so they will request through a license access to the quantum computer and that access they'll run a they'll run a, a project and that takes a fraction of a second mm. to run that project and you get a you get a, a response back very very quickly right so there are half a million users of one type of technology called ticket there's a half a million users of something called quizkit and these are software programs that allow you to access the quantum computers mm -hmm. so you know there's just a, there's a million people right there who are already accessing these quantum computers today for their very basic pilots, proof of concepts, that kind of thing. Another scenario is a company like Cleveland Clinic, where they actually mm. install the quantum computer on their premises. Wow. So they believe they have sufficient hard problems in the healthcare space that they need dedicated access. That will be very unusual. Yeah, so, but you have to have and, a tremendous amount of money to pull that off. Exactly. And so the third thing is anybody who has a Samsung new generation phone already has quantum technology. So hmm. inside the latest Samsung phone, there's a quantum random number generator chip. And what does that do? What it does is provides additional layer of security. So for example, if someone is out there trying to hack your phone, they're going to run into this random number generator chip which creates a security field for your phone. Hmm. So interesting. So, I mean, I guess it sounds like these things are so blazing fast that even if it gets millions, tens of millions of requests, each one is going to be processed in a fraction of a second. And it sounds like there won't be a bandwidth problem. No. And, you know, what we're seeing is the escalation of breakthroughs and improvements in each one of these types of quantum computers that capacity is not an issue. You know, it's really about awareness. You know, you and I talked about this before. How many people really understand what quantum or quantum yeah. computing is? And also proving out its fidelity or its capability and accuracy. Yeah. So we've got a long way to go, but for any of your listeners, now is the best time to actually start investigating. Okay, last, last, last question. There's already a, a rush for machine learning data scientists, right? There's a, a scramble to find them, competition for that talent. Has that begun with quantum data scientists or quantum engineers, whatever one calls them? Is that scramble already begun or is it going to be something we're going to see in, you know, three to five years from now? It's going to be massive competition for that talent. No, absolutely. The number one topic that's been raised at conferences in 2022. Mm. How do they find people and not just PhDs? You know, yes, they're important, but we need to have people who understand science and, you know, people who are salespeople, people who are, you know, involved yeah. in the operations environment. You know, we need those people and they are scarce. One of the pieces of optimism we have, though, is that we have significantly ramped up on the education and training front. Mm. So lots more courses on quantum science, quantum information science, master's programs. So we're very optimistic that those things in place will help people who are in STEM already, for example, to move into the field. Awesome. All right, Brian, that's all the questions I have for now. You've been <laughs> wonderful. This is super fascinating stuff. So thanks so much for coming on. You're very welcome. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.